The indigenous resistance movement known as Idle No More shows no signs of slowing down. Canadian Prime Minister Harper has been forced to address the demands of the movement, but on the eve of a meeting between the Prime Minister and the First Nations leaders, can the movement endure? What are the critical ingredients fueling this Indigenous resistance, and what is the role of non-Aboriginal Canadians in allying with and supporting this movement? We'll address these questions to writer and Indigenous activist Robert Anamiki Horton and to University of Lethbridge Professor of Globalization Studies Anthony Hall. On today's program, Idle No More. Bringing you the analysis beyond the headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of January 10th, 2013. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with some of the major news stories shaping the national and international political landscape. Chief Teresa Spence, who began her hunger strike in Ottawa on December 11th, has signed off on her will and is reportedly preparing to die. According to Spence's aides, the chief has also signed off on directions of non-intervention in the event her health should take a turn for the worst. On the eve of a meeting between Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper and First Nations leaders, Spence has refused to attend, indicating that the meeting must include the Queen's representative, Governor General David Johnston, who recently announced he would not attend the meeting. Other First Nations leaders are similarly considering backing out of the meeting if Johnson doesn't show. Six Nations Chief Montour, however, is encouraging Spence to end her strike on the day of the meeting, January 11th. Having consumed nothing but fish broth, water, and herbal teas, Spence's health is reportedly deteriorating. She has lost 22 pounds, she has stomach pains from a lack of solid food, and is increasingly fatigued. Her life partner, Clayton Kennedy, says her blood sugar is dropping. And that comes to us from APTN. President Correa of Ecuador is saying the CIA may try to assassinate him before the February 17th national elections. He cites reports by Chilean journalist Patricio Mary Bell indicating Correa's life was in imminent peril as well as citing a history of the CIA undermining Latin American governments. Three months ago, Bell published a report disclosing news of a CIA plot to destabilize Ecuador. Bell reported that $88 million was allocated to this plot. The money would be distributed among extremist anarchist, leftist, and hard-line conservative groups. The head of the U.S. diplomatic mission in Quito, Adam Nan, denies the U.S. would ever deliberately undermine sovereign elections, but Korea states there is a history of CIA interfering in Latin American affairs. Bell's report claims the main motives for the assassination plot are the closing of the U.S. Manta base and the provision of asylum for WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. 
During the 49-year-old economist's presidency, Ecuador has reduced poverty and increased stability and the overall standard of living, earning him popularity among the country's poor and educated middle classes. That comes to us from Russia Today. The Obama administration's use of drones in Yemen and Pakistan is coming under fire from two former U.S. officials, Michael Boyle, who sat as a counterterrorism advisor to Obama in the lead-up to the 2008 election, wrote in a study in the Chatham House Journal International Affairs that Obama, quote, has been just as ruthless and indifferent to the rule of law as his predecessor, unquote. Boyle also wrote that the administration's decision to list all male casualties of military age as combatants has reduced the civilian casualty count and lowered the standards by which drone targets are selected, leading to the targeting of mosques and funeral processions. Retired General Stanley McChrystal says the drone strikes are generating resentment and exacerbating the perception of American arrogance. A report by Stanford and NYU Schools of Law released in September found that the drones were terrorizing the population, leading parents to keep their children from home from school and away from large crowds, and assisting in the recruitment efforts of al-Qaeda. The report notes, quote, A significant rethinking of current U.S.-targeted killing and drone strike policies is long overdue. That comes to us from antiwar.com. U.S. government scientists are saying they are surprised by the jump in temperature experienced in the lower 48 states in 2012. The average temperature of 55.3 degrees Fahrenheit beat the previous 1998 record by a full degree. Moreover, 2012 was a record year for storms, including wildfires, storms, and droughts, with only 1998 being worse. The 11 weather-related disasters last year caused damage in excess of $1 billion each. Record-breaking wildfires in Colorado and New Mexico destroyed 650 homes and burned more than a quarter million acres, respectively. Tornadoes tore through Indiana, Kentucky, Ohio, and West Virginia, killing 42 people. In August, Hurricane Isaac came ashore near the mouth of the Mississippi, claiming the lives of nine people and destroying 4,700 homes. And Superstorm Sandy caused storm surges in New York and New Jersey, killing 131 people and damaging or destroying 650,000 homes. And that comes to us from CBS News. Idle No More is said to have began in early November with four young women in Saskatchewan discussing new federal legislation from the Canadian government that would threaten Indigenous treaty rights in Canada and harm environmental protection. The women proceeded to try to reach out to organizers in other cities across the country. Following a National Day of Action on December 10th, the chief of the beleaguered First Nation of Attawapiskat started a hunger strike to raise awareness of the plight of Canada's First Nations and to force a respectful dialogue between the Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper, the Queen's representative in Canada, Governor General David Johnston, and First Nations leaders. While technically separate from Idle No More, the hunger strike seems to have catalyzed a lot of the determination of grassroots activists. To date, over 100 Idle No More actions have taken place across Canada alone, including flash mobs and round dances in public places, and in more extreme cases, blockades of roads and rail lines. The Canadian Prime Minister has agreed to meet with First Nations leaders on January 11th, but not the Governor-General. 
Idle No More is now raising questions not only about the government legislation that triggered it, but about fundamental aspects of the relationship between the Canadian government and the First Peoples of Canada. and spoken word poet from Rainy River First Nation of Manitou Rapids in Treaty 3 territory. He has earned an international reputation for himself as an outspoken social and political activist. He was invited to speak at a teach-in on Idle No More at Winnipeg's Thunderbird House on December 31st. I interviewed Robert shortly after the event and asked him to address some of the challenges facing the movement and how non-Aboriginal activists can best ally themselves with the cause. Now, this uh, movement is happening in concert with the, uh, this uh, hunger strike by Chief Adewapiskat uh, Chief uh, Teresa Spence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, I, I'm just wondering if you could... Uh, address that whole idea of a grassroots movement alongside uh, this uh, this one action, which is on the one side, on the one level, it's uh, there's a spiritual aspect to it. It's a sacred fast. On the other hand, it's a, a political movement that uh, you know, many have compared to Gandhi and and others uh, strikes like that. So, um, yeah, did, do you see any particular tensions, especially given that this is a a, a chief? Uh, within that the first nations uh, within that um, tri- uh, tribe uh, that colonial uh, tribe and council system I think it's there's only uh, tension when we when we take it out of the frame of understanding that uh, our culture is political um, the way things are framed right here in Canada when we as first nation people are born we're immediately under colonial control through the uh, Department of Indian Affairs and such. Um, I mean, we're born with a, with a, with a status number. Um, so immediately, um, our activation and utility in anything we do from social movements to you know, uh, doing what we can do to empower ourselves is inherently political uh, in terms of um, the cultural aspect. Um, it's it's empowering, and I think to be empowered is to be political. When you when when you're uh, indigenous to this land, um, it wasn't long ago where we could be thrown in jail for using our medicines, using our drums, um, and I always wondered why that was. I always wondered why. Um, well, we just passed the anniversary of Wounded Knee. Why was the ghost dance such a threat? such a threat to uh, the military. Well, we're seeing it now. It's when we keep the culture, the spirituality, the cultural affinity central, it does re-empower us. And we we can see that happening right now. Um, In terms of of tension, I think it only becomes... I think it only becomes so when we take it out of that understanding that the two of them are intrinsically linked in terms of uh, culturalism, empowerment, and empowerment does lead to um, a political voice. And anything we do, anything we do is political because we are nations and we're fighting for that nation-to-nation relationship to be respected. So I think the contention or any attention at all, it, it really does rear its head when we only look at it up close. But when we step back and really see it full spectrum, it's all linked. It's all linked. Mm. Now, 
when you hear what we tend to hear from politicians, uh, whether they are actual elected representatives or or maybe small p politicians, uh, but basically sending out those messages about, uh, well, you know, you've got all these uh, all this corruption on all these reserves, and in, including Adawapiskat, or basically sure. the, the problems with accountability. Uh, how when you're talking about like that that sort of prejudice or, or that messaging that uh, percolates throughout the, the non-native community. Sure. Well, what would, how, how do you think uh, we should be addressing that kind of uh, mentality? Well, really see mainstream media, you know, as entertaining and funny as it can sometimes be or informative, it is uh, uh, an activation and a utility of the state. Um, when there was uh, accusations against Attawapiskat, it was all over the headlines. When they found that there was none happening, it went silent. There was a study, uh, Dr. Pamela Palmater talked about this in her Edmonton Idle No More Teaching, which is available on YouTube, that there was a study done of every audit uh, ever done for, uh, for First Nations. And what it searched for was mismanagement and corruption, you know, financial... Um, financial corruption, and there was a lower corruption rate than the municipalities or the feds. So who are the corrupt ones? Who are the consistently corrupt ones? From economics to right up into dishonoring the nation-to-nation relationship that this government, be it Harper or whoever, their existence here has depended on. Mm. That nation-to-nation relationship. Yeah, it is. Relationship. It is interesting. I mean, right. Well, what we're seeing in the, in the mainstream media is like one city mayor after another: Winnipeg, London, Toronto. You know, uh, all being dogged by these allegations of conflict of interest. Sure. But I don't hear anybody suggesting that those cities should be put under third-party management. Do you? No. Uh, <laughs> in terms of third-party management, uh, we used to have a different word for them back in the day, and they were called the Indian agent, and. Um, what I'm seeing today is the Indian agent is alive and well in 2013. Mm-hmm. And we call him Minister Duncan. <laughs> now, in terms of the, the, the activism we're seeing, I mean, we've seen uh, the, the, the peaceful, nonviolent round dances uh, in, in shopping malls and then sort of kind of a, a more of an escalation. You're, you're getting the traffic blockages uh, and uh, then, you know, more serious blockages. And, and so sure. and, and th- th- there's been some heat being put out there about, uh, you know, like what level of, of civil disobedience is, is too much. Sure. Um, do, do, is there a, a limit that uh, you think that should be set, and, and who should be setting those limits? I think um, the peaceful nature of the vision of the, the women that founded this, and also the women that, that helped empower it, people like Janice Makokas and Tanya Capo and Dr. Pamela Palmater, um, should be kept central. I mean, these, these conservatives, and uh, they're... What I see as an individual, and this isn't, I'm not a spokesperson, I'm just a community supporter for what's happening. What I see is they are trying to tempt us into their courtroom. They're trying to tempt us into their jail. If anyone's been looking at the um, incarceration uh, funding that has gone through, 
match that up with who has the biggest population bubble coming up. It's First Nation people. So who are those jail cells for? I don't think we should help them at their jobs. Trying to get us in there. However, um, I think the I think escalation is is natural. I was having a, a conversation with um, with uh, a leader here in Winnipeg. We went for uh, coffee and hot chocolate on uh, New Year's morning, and what we were talking about was that a movement is much like a fire. Um, you can't control how it moves. Um, you can't smother it. You can just have a relationship with it. You can be careful with it, but it's organic and it's going to grow how it will. Right now we're dealing with um, centuries of colonization. And I understand the frustrations. Um, I understand the hurts. Um, a good friend of mine was talking about uh, channeling that 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 uh that anger channeling that frustration and rather than thinking of it as like uh spraying gasoline all over room and lighting it up put it into an engine and let that spin your wheels anger uh yeah it's true it it, you know it's um it's kicked off things you know ku klux klan and such uh, crosses burn on front lawns but also anger and frustration and discontent also kicked off the civil rights movement so it's pretty much how it's used I think it's um, we should stay true to the emotions we're feeling. We should convey those in an honest way. But I think at the same time, we should be mindful of, at the end of the day, where is our energy? What is the end result of it? Um, are, we doing a lo- are we doing as much as we can do to create that awareness, to create that education, but also to create action? Because... Awareness without action, it's a diagnosis without cure. Whatever action means um, to one nation might not be the same action to another. And uh, we're in interesting times, and um, that's just my perspective. I don't think it can be really controlled even if we wanted to. Um, But I really hope people stay safe, and I really hope uh, this is a catalyst to empower not just First Nation people, but the grassroots right across this country. And, you know, as this just went global on Al Jazeera, perhaps the world as well. Hmm. Now, uh, it, it is quite spectacular, but uh, I'm wondering, you know, what you believe is the biggest threat, the, the biggest uh, obstacle. What, what's most likely going to go wrong to, to cause this uh, effort to just collapse? In terms of questions like that, I try to let history be a guide. Um, history, as, as we've known it, as we've experienced it, it can never steer us wrong. You know, the same trickster, whatever face he's wearing, whether it's Harper, whether it's Trudeau, the trickster is always there and the DNA is the same. I think back to when it was illegal and uh, for us to gather in in groups of three or four, First Nation people to gather in groups of three or four, the Indian agent uh, would come and bust us up. When ceremonies were banned, and it's not just the, uh, the re-empowerment and the ignition of who we are through ceremony, but ceremonies have also functioned like a, a gathering, a communication. 
what's happening over here? What's happening over here? Where is our discontent? What, what are we feeling really good about? Um, when ceremonies were banned, that was kneecapped in a huge way. I look at colonial impositions and divisions caused by on-reserve, off-reserve, uh, symptoms of uh, what Diane Hill calls ethnostress, and it's that division family on family, reserve on reserve, um, man and woman, elder to young people, and sees divisions. And that's, that's the key that I'm really looking at. How can this movement go wrong? And I think that's, it's defined by division. Divide and conquer. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's the same colonial strategy that's been used um, as far back as I know. Um, we can really look to history, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's England, whether it's the States, with things like Co- uh, COINTELPRO, counterintelligence program instituted by the FBI. Mm. Uh, which Infiltrators. Infiltrators. And that's a good point, too, even beyond divisions, where if division's the noose that chokes us daily, unity is what's going to set that free. Going beyond that, uh, if we look at the um, the protests and gatherings in Montebello, if we look at the G20, and really take into effect that's taken to thought that that CSIS has been doing surveillance on First Nation communities since 2006 under the direction of Harper's government. We're going to have infiltrators. We're going to have snitches. We're going to have agent provocateurs, and um, and I think keeping the peaceful nature of the movement, not only in our minds, but in our hearts, it's going to trip up those type of people that want to bust the windows or, I don't know, start a car on fire or something like that. If it escalates to that point, just so law enforcement can crack down on the peaceful. Um, I, I think that peace is an amazing strategy when confronting that. But I think we also have to be mindful of these people exist. Um, CSIS was recruiting a number of trying to recruit a number of people that that i knew out west because they spoke their language uh because they were community oriented and of course they said no they told them to get lost um division and um imposition of folks that do not have our best interest at heart. Well, there's another division that I, that's sort of coming to mind, and that's the uh, the, the motivation uh, or, or uh, um, uh, the modus operandi of, of the the First Nations leaders themselves. I mean, sure. e- even if they are well intentioned, they they seem to be, you know, gearing themselves for some kind of a control. Uh, sure, and you know, it, it I, I believe a lot of people. You know, within the grassroots, uh, uh, would be concerned about that because they, sure. you know, I mean, you have they, they want to be consulted, and that that's actually the the focus of Ch- Chief Spence's mm-hmm. uh, hunger strike uh, of her fast. You know, we want to be consulting with those leaders, and sure. you know, are they going to settle for some kind of a compromise that kind of dashes the what so many of these passionate people in the grassroots are wanting before the imposition of things like Indian Affairs and the Chief and Council System. And this is something that I I told a number of my students when I was uh, teaching at Hammersholt High School, was the way that leadership is imposed and set up now, the structure that the Chief and Council System is set up now. And this is even with well-intentioned chiefs. It's, It's very, it's hierarchical. How do I say that? Hierarchical? Yeah. Yeah, hierarchical. Um, where the leader's at the top and, and the, the community puts them into power. 
through voting. Traditionally, it was flipped around. The leader was there because of the community. And even in that, in that small instance of how power is granted or, or imposed, it really sets up a... How do I say this? It sets up a huge, uh, different dynamic of not only communication, but um, of a reality where rather than the community is there to vote this person in, the leader is there doing what they can do for the community. A guy named Rob Jerome said something really brilliant to me in a hallway of um, the Bore Alaskan building in Thunder Bay. He said there's a difference between helping and serving. Helping, uh, you're putting yourself higher than a community and you're, and you're giving down. It's almost uh, like, a, like a, there's a power structure there. You're putting yourself up and you're helping the needy. Whereas when you serve, you're putting the community higher than yourself, yourself of least importance, and you're serving. Is that kind of like uh, philanthropy versus solidarity? I would say philanthropy versus uh, even beyond social justice, I think uh, so, uh, socially transformative movements. I, I think mm-hmm. this we've gone into that here where we're putting our communities higher than ourselves. I mean, my God, the the way that this has been funded, it hasn't come through Indian Affairs. It hasn't come through things with strings attached. This movement has been funded greatly on gas money and donated hot chocolate and donated uh, coffee and carpools. We've gone way past philanthropy, way past uh, social justice, which says, if I put this money down, your problems are solved. We're into socially transformative movements now. Um, when, we, when we think about our chiefs, no matter what chief it is, the system that our leaders are existing in, our, our Indian Act leaders are existing in, by the very structure, it's, it's a helping. We need to get back to serving our communities. Just one more question before sure. I let you go. Uh, those of us who do not identify as uh, First Nations of sure. this land, what is the proper role for us to uh, to assist in that way uh, as opposed to, um, uh, to to act in a way that 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 might not uh, might go against the intentions. Sure. Um, by saying this again, I'm not a spokesperson. I'm not a leader. Um, I'm just uh, just a guy that helps try to support what I think is something very valuable for our kids. And I think the first step is to really see the turning common ground into common experience and taking common experience into shared aspiration and vision. Bill C-45, there's so much common ground that can be work with, worked with there. Um, but I think when allies are made, we can't just focus on C-45 because that's also saying, um, I'll be your ally in this because it affects me. But I won't pay attention to these other seven bills because it doesn't affect me. I think there has to be selflessness and humility but on both sides. I mean... Um, we've, we've existed in a state of division, uh, between indigenous and non-indigenous people for so long. And that's another division right there. Um, we've been, we've been pitted against each other in a colonial relationship between the colonized and colonizer. Um, and it doesn't have to be like that. 
I think it starts with uh, becoming um, aware, and I hate to use the word educated because it's very, it's a very. Um, there's uh, a connotation. There's a connotation of, of, I would say, ivory tower. I would say, become aware. Uh, mm-hmm. Listen, listen to um, our legitimate community leaders. Listen to people like that that are putting their lives on the line. There's a reason they're doing it. It's not for uh, grandiose. It's not for. Um, it's not for anything that doesn't deserve that type of approach. Um, C45, there's a lot of common ground there. But for allies, people that want to be allies, make yourself aware of the other bills and that education act that's being pushed through. Because if we want to call ourselves treaty partners, a lot of people say that on both sides. I'm a treat. I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a treaty partner. I'm a, uh, we're all treaty people. Pam Palmater said it best. If you want to call yourself a treaty person, be willing to live up to the obligations to, to what that treaty says on both sides. And I think that really does start with becoming aware. Beyond that, uh, creating those relationships, creating that community, and not trying to hijack uh, the message. And I, I saw a lot of that out west, and I've, I'm hearing reports of that right now. A lot of... Uh, uh, and this isn't to say environmental, other environmentalists are all like this. There's been a, cu- a few key individuals, environmentalists, that are trying to hijack this movement because of the soapbox and visibility. It comes down to humility. It comes down to respect. Um, take a look at our seven grandfather teachings. They're, they're useful for, ed- for anybody. Useful for community, useful for family, individual, region, nation, nation-to-nation relationship. Um that's what I think. It, it comes down to humility and respect um, and making yourself aware not just what affects part of our collective. Take a look at all those bills and what that's going to mean. What does that say in terms of how agreements and rights are honored? Because if they're going to do it to us, they're going to do it to you. That was writer, sociologist, and indigenous activist Robert Animiki Horton. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partner campus community radio stations across the country. We are also podcast at the site for the Center for Research on Globalization at globalresearch.ca. On this installment of the Global Research News Hour, we've been examining the Indigenous Peoples Resistance Movement in Canada known as Idle No More. The movement was instigated by federal legislation recently introduced to the Canadian Parliament. Here is an explanation of the eight pieces of legislation impacting on First Nations in Canada as presented by Robert Horton from the December 31st teach-in at Thunderbird House in Winnipeg. Bill number one. The Jobs and Growth Act, Bill C-45, how this will affect our First Nations. Its Indian Act changes with zero consultation of communities. That's breaking treaty right there. It lowers the threshold, lowers the protection of our reserve lands to be surrendered. It no longer will take, if this goes through, it will no longer take a majority of community voices just whoever shows up. Also in Bill C-45, there's a, a change to the Navigable Waters Act. 
what does this do? It encroaches provincial laws onto our communities. That's breaking treaty right there. Provincial laws. It also strengthens the province's abilities to expropriate land. The Harper government, through this, wishes to unlock, to unlock our reserve lands for resources. And if anyone here has been following the news, China's waiting to go, Enbridge is waiting to go, and many pipelines are waiting to be laid. Bill number two, the Indian Act Amendment and Replacement Act. A guy named Bob Clark brought a private member's bill to Ottawa. What Rob Clark wants to do is repeal the Indian Act. The Indian Act is a tricky thing. It's a tricky thing because it's paternalistic and progressive, but at the same time, the way that it's written, it, it's also keeping the province keep it from keeping the province's laws and policies off of our lands. It's keeping Enbridge at bay. Rob Clark wants to do away with the Indian Act. What is that going to do? How quickly is the province going to jump and violate our lands if that goes through? Also, it's taken away the power of our lawmaking ability on our sovereign lands. Rob Clark is proposing that we lose power and we can, as if we cannot make choices for ourselves. One of the changes he wants to make is to forbid the prohibition of alcoholic beverages on our reserves, even if we want so. How Pamela Polwater put it, I'll never forget it. It's basically saying, you'll get drunk and you'll like it. Bill number three, family homes on reserve and matrimonial interests. This does not recognize our First Nation abilities to pass bylaws. Right there is an attack on sovereignty. It's denying our own lawmaking power, especially when it comes to matrimonial property. For the first time in history, through this act, for the first time in history, lands that are protected for indigenous people in Canada can be delivered and given to non-First Nation people. That's one of the acts. Number four, the First Nations Election Act. This will give the minister power. It'll give the minister power to look at any of our custom election codes, which we have because we never signed away our sovereignty. It'll give the minister power to look at a custom election code, and if he decides to, to impose a different code on there. What this will, what this will also do If anyone in the communities protests a shoddy election, an illegal election, they can go to jail or have a $5,000 fine. Essentially what this is doing is silencing our voices at the community level. Bill S8, safe drinking water for First Nations. It sounds great. It sounds great. But what is it really doing? It'll give the federal government the power to set up rules and regulations over water and sanitation. And if they say work has to be done, guess who pays for it? It will be coming out of our current financial model. And the funding formula is for housing and uh, social assistance and such. 
This will basically transfer jurisdiction and incorporate provincial laws onto a reserve. Broken treaty right there. First Nation Education Act. This is very important because this is coming in a few months unless we stop it. It is basically the feds vacating, vacating their responsibility to education to the province. If there's vacating of responsibility, there's vacation, there's vacating of funding as well. Once they legislate a treaty right, they can say it's outside of Section 35 and it can't be undone. First Nation Self-Government Recognition Bill. This is very important. Very important. In 1887, the United States government issued something called the Dawes Act. What the Dawes Act did, it took all reserve lands, communally held reserve lands, as our reserves are now, and it broke them up into individual, privately owned parcels that could be easily sold off. The largest land grab in United States history did not come from the treaties. It came from the 1887 Dawes Act. This is what the Harper government has planned for our sovereign nations and our sovereign lands. It's basically reopening it to settlement, to be sold off. Many of the lands that were sold off and taken in the United States went to military, government, and resource extraction. Bill C-27, First Nation Financial Transparency Act. The media's done a really good job making it seem like our, all of our chiefs are millionaires, would you say? Apparently uh, all of our chiefs are millionaires. A study was done, and it looked at all uh, uh, financial reports in a huge amount of time. And it looked at for any corruption that has that's been happening in our First Nation. Our First Nations have a lower corruption rate than municipalities and, pro and provinces put together. And this is how the one. What this bill will do will force us to open our books, financial books, not to just our membership, to the public. So if we're, we have a private business that's trying to supplement our poverty, is this really for our protection against corruption? Or is this a way for them to justify further funding cuts while our kids starve? While our kids don't have a place to lay their head at night? This is what's coming, unless we stop it. Anthony Hall is Professor of Globalization Studies at the University of Lethbridge and a former Professor of Native Studies. He's the author of the book Earth into Property, which describes the impact of capitalism on indigenous peoples. And he recently authored an article in the journal Veterans Today about the history of Native struggle against colonial interests. I spoke to him recently to ask him to put the Idle No More movement in a historical context. Well, of course, the uh, history of resistance to the colonization uh, began almost immediately, so we could say the history of this movement, Idle No More, really goes back to 1492, and uh, this incredibly aggressive 
uh, juggernaut of a movement to transform uh, the Western Hemisphere into colonies of Europe. Uh, of course, indigenous peoples have uh, been um, pushed aside and um, preempted and extinguished and killed. And in many instances, uh, it's you know one of the most uh, consistent cases of genocide, uh, centuries-old genocide. So. If we think of uh, First Nations resisting, uh, this Idle No More movement, of course, draws on a lot of uh, uh, antecedents. But there is something very unique about the way this movement is unfolding. Uh, On December the 21st, I went into uh, the mall looking for what I expected to be maybe a group of a dozen or two dozen people with a drum. Instead, I found the whole uh, central area of the mall in Lethbridge, Alberta, full of uh, Native people, blood and pagan people. Uh, immediately, uh, somebody started uh, with hand drum. He was joined by many others with hand drums, and people just within seconds uh, fell into uh, round dancing. Nobody was giving direction. So there is a kind of spontaneous uh, upsurge, really from grassroots, enough is enough. Uh, I think that uh, change of alignment uh, that we were looking at, uh, looking for around December 21st, uh, I never saw thought I would see something like that in the Lethbridge Mall. Uh, it seemed that there really is some new energy afoot. Of course, this movement also draws on uh, the early stages of the Arab Spring, uh, the indignados in Europe, uh, the Occupy Wall Street movement, uh, um, the uh, Printemps Arable. Uh, you know, there is uh, the mood all over that uh, people who are, are oppressed uh, aren't willing to accept it anymore and are uh, finding one another uh, through social media, social networking on the Internet. But also it seems that a big part of this uh, movement involves actually getting together physically, being present uh, with one another and uh, uh, manifesting uh that uh, that stance. Now you do write in the article, and, and it's been mentioned before when you talk about the the mall and this, this the round dance and the drumming. These are uh, elements of uh, indigenous society that the, the the colonizing forces actually tried to ban. Uh, is that uh, that that a critical component of this? That uh, well, it did occur to me that in 1890. Uh, the ghost dance, what they called the ghost dance religion, people uh, all over uh, the Midwest uh, in North America uh, in in an era when people were being more or less uh, bludgeoned into settling within the constraints of reserves, uh, special laws, people had been disarmed, uh, there was the massacre of Bigfoot's band. Uh, so, you know, there was the round dancing taking place then, so it, it does uh, have a, an interesting uh, historical antecedent um, there, there's so much, uh, so many dimensions, ways to look at this, but I think we could really uh, bring it into focus well if we consider that in 1982, when the Canadian Constitution was patriated, uh, it included a provision, Section 35. And you'll recall that in 1981, provincial premiers had tried to take out this provision, which says the Aboriginal and treaty rights of the Aboriginal peoples of Canada are hereby recognized and affirmed. Uh, that Those are simple words, but there, there's anything but simplicity behind those words. So Aboriginal and treaty rights are to be recognized and affirmed, it says in the highest law. Now, who is to do this recognizing and affirming? 
I notice uh, whenever um, Stephen Harper comments on this idle no more movement, the first thing he says is that uh, he expects people to obey the law. And uh, Canadian citizens and people in the world expect Stephen Harper to obey the law. And there is no good claim whatsoever that the Canadian government has been adhering to this recognition and affirmation of Aboriginal and treaty rights. In my view, the Indian Act itself is a violation of Section 35. We don't need an Indian Act. We need a Section 35 Implementation and Enforcement Act. So there, there is this view all around that enough is enough. Uh, there are treaties. There is a, a deep heritage of you know, British imperial connection with the First Nations, with the Aboriginal peoples of Canada. And uh, to um, cover this all up and uh, uh, you know, ch- transform uh, as radically as this Bill C-45 does uh, the nature of Canada by pulling, for instance, the federal government out of millions of creeks, waterways, fish habitat, and that, you know, navigable waters. The um, federal government is trying to get out of the business of being a national government of Canada and on many fronts. Uh, we know that these changes to the Indian Act conform to the uh, directives given by uh, Tom Flanagan, Professor Fa- Flanagan, in his book, uh, First Nations, Second Thoughts. And that agenda is one of privatization, assimilation to sort of finish off the work of the Indian Act, which was from its inception meant to transform Indian reserves into municipalities and sort of treat Indian people as children, as wards of the federal government who would eventually be entering the the body politic as normal Canadian citizens. Um, uh, that Indian Act heritage, which came about as a result of the local government, the Canadian government taking over from the imperial government responsibility for Indian affairs, that is in total violation of this higher law, this Section 35 law, the existing Aboriginal and treaty rights, which are not being recognized and affirmed by the Canadian government, which are being consistently denied and negated. We see that in every case that goes to court where the federal government takes a position in court invariably the ministry of justice takes the position that whatever aboriginal rights may have existed have been extinguished or they never existed in the first place uh... there there is no uh, decent record that the canadian government can point to to say that it, it respects the law and is recognizing and affirming aboriginal and treaty rights this bill c-45 is indicative of a pattern of denial and negation. Professor and Hall, you know, uh, like you, uh, there was a, a recent an announcement of a, a successful case in which uh, uh, there were uh, a Mikasu Cree in, in your province which uh, had uh, won a case in which the, uh, the government was found to have been uh, uh, acting outside their, their proper jurisdiction. Yeah. Well, now, what, what I'm referring to here, Michael, so, so you have uh, judges who are sometimes trying to uh, adhere to the principles of Section 35, but uh, I, I don't know the details of the case, but I can almost guarantee you that the Ministry of Justice was in court taking positions on behalf of the government of Canada, the people of Canada, essentially taking positions that are called the Crown, the Crown Prosecutors, taking positions on behalf of you know, Queen Elizabeth II, the Queen of Canada, and uh, fighting the Aboriginal people. The Aboriginal peoples, whenever they're taking a position in court, 
they are working against both crowns, the provincial crowns and the federal crown, who, um, in the case of Quetzalcoatl, which I write about, for instance, you know, the, the, this pattern of trying to criminalize those who would exercise their Aboriginal and treaty rights, treating Aboriginal and treaty rights as a matter for the criminal courts. This is, this is becoming obscene, and, and, and uh, Stephen Harper uh, needs to respect the laws of Canada and, and not live outside the rule of law, spit on the rule of law, but show some understanding and appreciation of, of, of what he is bound to do, uphold the Constitution of Canada, specifically Section 35, which recognizes and affirms Aboriginal and treaty rights. The Indian Act has nothing to do with Aboriginal treaty rights. Okay. Well, this uh, this pattern then that, that you assert that the, the, the Canadian government is violating our own constitution, our own laws, uh, what about the international arena? I mean, are they not also – because as I understand that, that these – the, the First Nations perspective, they're, they're seeing this as a nation-to-nation uh, yeah. arrangement, and so well, we, this we, is we a, an international in, incident, no? We can get into the international dimensions of First Nations-Crown relations, but at, let, let's begin by pointing out that Bill C-45, this omnibus bill, this so-called ominous omnibus bill, uh, it um, has you know 550 pages, it covers 30 different subjects, it has uh, over 500 uh, p- provisions. This is not consistent with the expectations of, you know, democratic procedure where you seek consent of the governed. Uh, Gail Davidson, who took a, you know, major role in trying to have George Bush arrested in uh, Canada and uh, have the government of Canada to adhere to its own obligations, treaty obligations in, in international law. She and others have taken a position that Bill C-45, just by throwing all of these issues in together and making it sort of impossible to have a coherent discussion on any one aspect of it, because there's so many dimensions of it, that in itself is contrary to international law. This relationship with First Nations, this is a global issue. Colonization did not only happen in Canada or in North America or in the Western Hemisphere. The colonization of indigenous peoples by empires largely emanating from Europe, uh, this happened all over the world. So Canada taking this position that Aboriginal and treaty rights are recognized and affirmed, this has resonance all over the world because we're dealing in the Middle East, in Israel-Palestine, for instance, all through Africa. We're dealing with legacies of this colonization and the inequity and the ongoing character of colonization. Um, so, so yes, there, there is important international dimensions to this. And Canada basically is being shamed. The government of Canada is disgracing our good name and reputation. Canada is not pictured any longer as a place that respects human rights. The human rights of Aboriginal peoples are, are being violated. The laws of Canada are being violated. International laws are being violated. And, it, and it's time that this law and order government uh, face up to the fact that it is living outside the rule of law. British Columbia is a, a jurisdiction that has developed outside the rule of law, outside the heritage of the Royal Proclamation of 1763. Is it simplistic to, or, or accurate to compare this uh, idle no more movement uh, that, that, you know, as things seem to come to a head to, say, the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa or the civil rights movement in the United States or, or something else? 
Oh, well, these, these things are closely connected. Uh, in my article, for instance, I write about the report of the British Parliamentary Committee on Aborigines in British Settlements, and that committee looked at the position of Indigenous peoples in South Africa, and New Zealand, in Canada, in Australia, in Fiji, for instance, in Tasmania, in, in many parts of the empire. So this issue of, you know, the colonization and land grabbing and resource theft from indigenous peoples in the process of imperial expansion and then the national states that replace these um, uh, imperial governments in many cases they just even accelerate the uh, expropriation and uh, theft from indigenous peoples uh, native people were better off when they could at least appeal to the british imperial government uh, now they're kind of trapped in a domestic situation, and every nation-state is sort of trying to keep the lid on their own oppression of indigenous peoples. But this is a, a global issue, an international issue. There's a UN instrument, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Canada, the United States, Australia, and New Zealand would not pass it. They voted against it initially in 2007 in the UN General Assembly, sort of exposing a lot about those countries that have most oppressed and marginalized the indigenous peoples, those settler governments, those settler nations, which Canada is, New Zealand is, Australia is, U.S. is, uh, is, is Israel a settler state? Uh, South Africa, they've dealt with their identity as a settler state. We, we still need to uh, grapple with and reckon with the ongoing identity of Canada and the United States as settler states uh, built to embrace newcomers and their descendants to the disadvantage of the indigenous peoples. Now, when we look at, uh, you know, in that context, oh, Canada, the settler state, and, and this uh, growing resistance, how important is it to maintain, to, to uh, focus on the, the war for public opinion? I mean, we're seeing right now uh, the media focusing on that audit of the Attawapiskat Reserve and appearing to uh, discredit some of the... Uh, figures that seem to be high yeah. within there. Well, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I think, unfortunately, it's probably uh, easier to get votes by saying I'm going to stand up to Indigenous people, get tough with them, that um, that would be, you know, there, there would be political uh, mileage, leverage to be um, derived from taking that tough stance to say that Aboriginal and treaty rights is just an issue of public opinion and if uh, the general public in Canada like Aboriginal and treaty rights, they will be recognized and affirmed. But if they, they don't like it, they won't be recognized and affirmed. They'll be denied and negated. I mean, that's not how it works. This is a, a, a classic situation where you have a, a menaced and endangered minority. And to say that your only um, possibility for um, easing the oppression you're feeling is to is to persuade public opinion that you should be treated better. Um, you know, th th this, is not, uh, uh, this is not credible. This is not uh, a decent approach. Uh, nevertheless, the reality is, you know, that, that we all do have to live in, in, in an environment where the opinion of our fellow citizens and uh, our neighbors, uh, you know, matters a lot. Um, so um, there is going to be, you know, there is a, 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 a a nucleus that understands how ruthlessly the government of Canada is violating its own constitution. 
to persuade the majority of people of that, well, um, you know, good luck. We'll, we'll 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 give it a try. But I think what we're seeing is a is a critical mass of informed people who who may be a minority, uh, but are you know are deeply offended by uh, so many attacks on you know the, the the more decent side of Canada, the better side of Canada. And I would say Section 35 is something that, you know, Canada could hold up in the global community. And if we really were recognizing and affirming these Aboriginal and treaty rights, this would give Canada a great deal of respect and, and clout in the international community and ability to present itself as a genuine champion of human rights, uh, not as a, a warmonger always siding with the uh, conquering armies, uh, destroying uh, the latest uh, round of Indigenous peoples, Aboriginal peoples, who have the temerity to stand on resources, oil, gas, uranium, hydroelectricity, fish, you name it. Uh, um, you know, the, what, what we're seeing is a, is a huge resource grab in Canada, uh, a dispossession and disentitlement by a tiny minority of extremely entitled individuals uh, who have made this system work uh, for themselves to the disadvantage of many interests and groups in Canada, but especially the Indigenous peoples who do have treaties with the Crown. And the Crown, at some point, the Government of Canada is going to have to face the fact that it is in severe violation of, 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 of laws and that uh, uh, internationally this is not uh, conducive to Canada living up to its potential. One last question, if I may, uh, Professor Hall. Uh, what about people who have been active uh, for social justice and other causes, whether it's uh, uh, Paul Palestine solidarity, anti-war activist, anti-globalization, food security, environmental, so far? How important is it for them to align themselves with this uh, indigenous resistance movement? Yes, well, this confederacy building that we work on is so very, very important. And the... Uh, by going down to the roots of where Canada comes from and how Canada came to be the way it is, you know, a lot of things are clarified. So this Idle No More movement really is, I think, attracting wide uh, public support from the progressive forces in Canada and indeed in many parts of the, of the world. And uh, this is Canada taking a leading role now internationally, working towards uh, dealing with this legacy of colonization and land theft and, and appropriation, let's, let's have a more equitable approach to uh, resource sharing and power sharing in our society. Let's actually recognize and affirm Aboriginal and treaty rights in Canada. Professor Hall, I want to thank you very much for that, uh, those insights and uh, look forward to speaking to you again in the not-too-distant future. Okay, thanks, Michael. That was University of Lethbridge Professor of Globalization Studies, Anthony Hall. The Global Research News Hour is broadcast every Thursday at 10 a.m. on CKUW 95.9 FM and on our partner stations across the country. You can download our podcasts from the Center for Research on Globalization's website at globalresearch.ca. I am host and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.